from verse 57. 57th verse of chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel. I'm reading in Philip's version. That evening, Joseph, a wealthy man from Arimathea, who was himself a disciple of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave orders for the body to be handed over to him. So Joseph took it, wrapped it in clean linen, placed it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn in the rock. Then he rolled a large stone across the doorway of the tomb and went away. But Mary from Magdala and the other Mary remained there, sitting in front of the tomb. Next day, which was the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees went in a body to Pilate and said, Sir, we have remembered that while this impostor was alive, he said, After three days I shall rise again. Will you give the order then to have the grave closely guarded until the third day, so that there can be no chance of his disciples coming and stealing the body and telling the people that he has risen from the dead? We should then be faced with a worse fraud than the first one. You have a guard, Pilate told them. Go <coughs> and make it as safe as you think necessary. And they went and made the grave secure, putting a seal on the stone and leaving the soldiers on guard. When the Sabbath was over, just as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary from Magdala and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. At that moment, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, went forward and rolled back the stone and took his seat upon it. His appearance was dazzling like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards shook with terror at the sight of him and clapped like dead men. But the angel spoke to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said he would. Come and look at the place where he was lying. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And listen, he goes before you into Galilee. You will see him there. Now I have told you my message. Then the women went away quickly from the tomb, their hearts filled with awe and great joy, and ran to give the news to his disciples. But quite suddenly, Jesus stood before them in their path and said peace be with you and they went forward to meet him and clasping his feet worshipped him and then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go now and tell my brothers to go into Galilee and they shall see me there while they were on their way some of the sentries went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened they got together with the elders and after consultation gave the soldiers a considerable sum of money and told them, your story must be that his disciples came after dark and stole him away while you were asleep. If by any chance this reaches the governor's ears, we will put it right with him and see that you do not suffer for it. 
So they took the money and obeyed their instructions. The story was spread and is current among the Jews to this day. But the eleven went to the hillside in Galilee where Jesus had arranged to meet them. And when they had seen him, they worshipped him, though some of them were doubtful. But Jesus came and spoke these words to them. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You then are to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. we come to the burial of the king the seventh subsection in what we have entitled the passion of God's king that is the verses in chapter 27 from 57 to 66 57 to 66 you will have already found on your seat the notes of last week's study so we will not go over that at all. When we come to this verse 57, there is one all-pervading fact, gloomy, morbid, <coughs> and gripping. And that fact was this, the king was now dead. For those who had stood by the cross right through the hours of his suffering it was very hard to believe but the fact was quite evident before their own eyes those lips that had spoken as never man had spoken before were now silent no breath at all. Those hands that with a touch had healed innumerable multitudes were still no movement at all. That body which was the true temple of God on earth for 33 years the meeting place between God and man, where God was revealed, where God was known, where God was heard, was now lifeless. The long predicted, the long promised, and the long awaited Messiah was dead. Dead. It was hard for any of them to believe. There is no doubt that not one of the disciples expected, not one of the disciples expected Christ to be raised from the dead. This, of course, is one of the strongest uh, reasons uh, for our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not one of them. They were all disillusioned and disappointed people 
even although Christ had explicitly said that on the third day he would be raised from the dead, not one of them believed. You will remember if you turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, the Lord Jesus had said, from that time began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised up. Then again, if you turn to chapter 20, just for another example, and verse 19, we read, And shall deliver him unto the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he shall be raised up. In spite of these explicit words of the Savior himself, not one of those disciples, not one of them, expected that he would ever live again. Not in that body. His life was over. He was dead. The whole impression one gains from all the records, all four Gospels, is that everyone thought that the cross was the end they had very definite conceptions of what was going to happen, of this messianic kingdom, of the glory that was going to come, of the throwing off of the Roman yoke, of the, of the restoration of Israel to the supreme place amongst the nations, the time of the Gentiles over. They had very real and definite ideas about it. For them, the cross was the sentence of death on all those ideas and all those conceptions, everything was over. As we often say, the bottom had fallen out of their lives. Matthew tells us that of all the disciples, it was the women who were conspicuous for their courage and their faithfulness during the last hours of the king's life. The men can hardly be called conspicuous. Certainly not for faithfulness or courage. But the ladies, Matthew singles out. He tells us in verse 55 and 56 that many women, now mark it, many women, not just a handful, many women who had followed him from Galilee ministering unto him, endured those terrible six last hours of his life. It is true, they watched from a distance, discreetly, but they were conspicuous for their faithfulness and their courage. As far as we know, there were only three men with them. John, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You turn to John chapter 19 and verse um, 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. So we know John was there. Uh, also the same chapter 
um, verse 38 and 39, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took away his body. And there came also Nicodemus, he who at the first came to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And then if we also compare that with Luke chapter 23 verse 49 Luke 23 verse 49 and all his acquaintance and the women that followed with him from Galilee stood afar off seeing these things. And then it goes on to talk about uh, Joseph. It seems then that there were only three men uh, in uh, that company that endured the last hours of his life uh, with him. And we must say this, we are not even sure that Joseph and Nicodemus were there, which means that in fact the only men present, as far as we know at least named, was John. Um, although it, would, it implies that Joseph and Nicodemus were there, it is not actually stated and can easily be read that they only came after it was all over. Uh, Joseph went to Pilate and asked uh, for uh, the body. But whatever may have been the case, it was to this little group of men and women, numbed with grief and shock, that the responsibility of burying the king fell. Now both Joseph and Nicodemus were, were members of the Sanhedrin and both were secret believers. Now you all know the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, how he came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews. We are told uh, in John uh, chapter 19, those verses we read, verse 38 and 39, that both Joseph and Nicodemus were secret believers for fear um, of the Jews. Mark, uh, Matthew 27 and verse 57, Matthew 27, 57, tells us that Joseph was also himself Jesus' disciple. Doesn't even say secretly there, just as Jesus' disciple. So it is clear that to begin with, both Joseph and Nicodemus were secret believers. They were afraid. In the heart they believed, but they were afraid to come out into the open. Matthew, um, because finally Joseph came out into the open, called him one of Jesus' Uh, disciples. Now Joseph was a very wealthy man and like so many wealthy men he was therefore a very respected gentleman um, especially a respected counsellor in the Sanhedrin. Uh, he had been no party at all to either the intrigues of the Sanhedrin concerning the Lord Jesus or uh, to their final verdict. He had, in fact, we're told in Mark, um, uh, in Luke 23 and 51, we're told he did not cast his vote for the verdict 
of guilty. So it seems quite clear that Joseph had been being forced into the open. Slowly, step by step, he had been forced into the open, into an open declaration of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the death of the Lord Jesus finally drew Joseph of Arimathea out into the open. And with great courage, for it took courage, a man so well known and so respected in the Sanhedrin, with great courage, Mark tells us, he went to the Roman governor and asked for the body of Jesus. He was probably the only one who could have done it, he or Nicodemus, no one else could have done it. He went and asked for the body. The Romans never buried the body, bodies of those crucified. They always left them on the cross to rot as a, as a sign. But they had given a concession to the Jews in Judea because of Jewish custom and law and feeling, and they permitted the burial of crucified people before sunset of the day on which they were crucified. Jewish law, indeed the law of God, states in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, that a man should not be left hanging on a tree or a stake after sunset on the day on which he was crucified. Thus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the women had about two and a half hours in which to get to Pilate, get consent to have the body, go back to the cross, get the cross, the, the body down from the cross, prepare it, wash it, prepare it, embalm it, get it into a tomb, and uh, see that everything was done uh, decently. Two and a half hours less than that, in which to fulfill decent, all that love, respect, and custom required in the burial of a loved one. Remember that. It was after three o'clock, just about three o'clock, that Jesus died. The Sabbath began at six o'clock with sunset that evening. It was just about two and a half hours they had. Joseph had his own newly constructed tomb in the garden where the crucifixion took place. It was quite a common custom for wealthy Jews to um, have their tombs constructed uh, or built uh, during their lifetime. They were built and or prepared uh, during their lifetime. Joseph's tomb, we're told in verse 60 of this chapter 27, was hewn out of the rock face. That's a very interesting little point. There are quite a number of them in Jerusalem. Um, hewn out of the rock. And his was one of them. Uh, it was a sign of some wealth that um, he could have afforded such uh, a tomb. Now normally this type of tomb consisted of two chambers. The first was a kind of entrance hall with a little ledge that ran round it where you could sit sit on, like a seat, a bench seat all the way round, just a ledge cut out of the rock. And beyond that there was a second chamber where niches were cut out of the wall, one or more niches, in which the bodies 
were laid uh, to rest. The entrance opening was always a very small opening. That's why it says in some of the other records they stooped to look in. Some people have said that uh, what, they couldn't understand that. If the stone was such a great stone, why would did they have to stoop to look in? If the big stone was so large, when it was rolled away, it should have left a large opening. You could stand up and just look in. No, it was a big stone always that covered uh, the uh, entrance into the tomb. But the, to the, the opening into the tomb itself, the actual aperture, was a small one. You had to crouch to go into it. Here, for those of you who are interested, because it all shows the authenticity of God's word, there are pictures of such tombs and there is a picture, or a diagram of the construction of a number of tombs that have been discovered uh, around Jerusalem of this type. You can come and look at that afterwards if you are interested. The, the, the opening into the tomb was um, covered by a huge stone um, door, great stone, that was shaped like a millstone, which was rolled always into place in a kind of groove. To this tomb of, jo of Joseph, uh, this little group of folk, a few women, Joseph and Nicodemus, as far as we know, John wasn't there, he's certainly not mentioned. This little group took Christ's body, having taken, taken it down from the cross. It was their responsibility. They had to get up to the cross. They had to somehow get those hands off the nails. They took it down very lovingly. They bathed it. They carried it into the garden. And there they got to the first chamber of his tomb. They started to embalm it with clean, new linen. And then Nicodemus had bought aloes and myrrh, and as they began to wind the linen round the body, so they <laughs> added in all the time the aloes and the myrrh, the spices. It was the custom of uh, the Jews to do this in uh, burial. They then laid the dead body in the tomb. You've got that in verse 59. Verse 59. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which had hewn in the rock and rolled a great stone to the door of the, of the tomb uh, and departed. He, he, he rolled the stone over the door. Why? Why did, they, why did they suddenly stop? Because the Sabbath was already about to start and all of them knew they'd got to stop. So they broke off the rest of the arrangements and um, Joseph rolled the stone into place and he left the two women, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary there sitting opposite um, the uh, tomb and he went off. Um, they could do nothing more now till the end of the Sabbath which was the next day at six o'clock. They had to rest during the whole of that day. You've got that again in verses 60 and 61. Now it is an extraordinary fact that if all the disciples had uh, either forgotten or disbelieved 
um, the Lord's own words about his being raised again on the third day, the Sanhedrin hadn't. Now this is an extraordinary thing. We talk about the world being wiser in its own way than the Lord's people. They had walked with the Lord. They had listened to the Lord's words. Yet they had either completely forgotten or utterly disbelieved his words. The Sanhedrin hadn't. You see what the Sanhedrin says. They, uh, they are so concerned um, and bothered about the prediction of Christ that he would rise again on the third day that they sought an immediate audience with uh, the Roman governor. And furthermore, they sought the audience on the Sabbath. Here are the disciples who you would have thought could have gone on and completed the burial arrangements on the Sabbath, breaking off so that they might keep the Sabbath to the detail. Here is the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the leaders, the chief priests and the elders, the scribes, the leaders of the, of the people of God, and they're breaking the Sabbath. They go to the Roman governor, they seek an immediate audience, and what is the objective of this audience? You find this is in verse 62 and, and 63 and 64. Their sole object was to persuade Pilate to take action ensuring that the disciples could not work a miracle. You note the words, this imposter, authorised version deceiver, this imposter, and then what words, lest the last fraud be worse than the first. This is their uh, estimate of Christ. An imposter. Fraudulence. Lest the last fraud be worse than the first. Now it is very interesting that this is what they say. While he was still alive, he said, this imposter said, after three days I will rise again. Isn't it interesting? The Sanhedrin remembers what the Lord said about rising on the third day. The disciples have all completely forgotten. Now you'll notice that um, Pilate in verse uh, um, uh, 65, Pilate is quite clear. Pilate does not want to become too involved. He's already been involved enough. He's washed his hands of the whole affair and doesn't want to get involved anymore. He tells them to take a guard and make the tomb as secure as you can. There is a little bit of sarcasm in his word. Make the tomb as secure as you know. Those are the words. Make it as secure as you know how. And by the way, probably it is better, as in the New English Bible, and in the revised version margin and the revised standard version margin, it is probably better rendered, rather, you have a God, it is better rendered, take a God. Take a God. Uh, and uh, make it as secure as you know how. So, the Sanhedrin take a God of Roman soldiers, numbering about 60 men. And they go 
and they seal the tomb. Now, the sealing of the tomb was not an uncommon custom uh, to prevent unauthorized entry. It was generally done with clay, and sometimes a cord went across, and then the seal went into it. That's all. It, it prevented unauthorized entry. They weren't, they of course never believed the man inside would rise uh, and come out. What they wanted to stop was anyone from without getting within. That's all they were bothered about. They were only only worried about people, these, these, uh, these impostors, these others who've been with this impostor who are themselves fraudulent. They'll, they'll get inside the tomb and they'll steal the body away at night, some other time. So they sealed it. No possibility now. Anyone just touch that great stone door and the seal is broken. We shall know. But uh, they did more than that. They let 60 guards on duty. 60. 60 guards on duty. Incredible thing. A lifeless body. And 60 guards on duty. No one has ever refuted it. The seal, the guard, it's all fact. The Sanhedrin had seen Christ crucified. They had seen him die. They now sealed the tomb and set a watch of 60 men to guard it. All that could be done had been done, they could do no more. Everything that human ingenuity could conceive had been done. Christ was dead. His lifeless body was in the tomb. A great stone was over uh, the entrance. It was sealed and it was guarded by 60 men. The burial of the king. Well, now that comes to the end of that, of what we've called the passion of the king. We leave him in the tomb. We now come to the last section of the gospel according to Matthew, the 28th chapter, which I have entitled The Triumph of God's King. It, this chapter, this final chapter, is filled with the absolute and glorious triumph of God's King. He had finished the work of our salvation and triumphed over the devil and his host on the cross. He had tasted death for every man. Now God did not leave his soul to hell nor did he give his Holy One to see corruption. He raised him from the dead. In this last chapter, uh, in the last chapter we have just looked at, chapter 27, we have left his lifeless body in the tomb, sealed. Now, 
man has done all that he could do to ensure that he stays there. And we can be quite certain that the devil did everything he could do to keep him there. We can be quite certain of that. There are only two words that explain resurrection of any kind on any level. And those two words are but God. It is quite impossible. We have left the king lifeless. We have left the king in an impossible situation, humanly speaking. God has allowed the whole thing, as it were, on the human level, to go into the realm of impossibility. Man is incapable of doing anything. The only thing they could do, if they had been able to do anything, was to steal away the body. The only thing they could have done. And that was made impossible by a guard of 60 men. And remember, in the good old days, the man was put on duty and something happened while he was on duty. He forfeited his life. They were Roman soldiers. They kept awake during those hours. They knew how serious it was. There was a seal on that tomb which they've got to guard with their life. There's only one explanation for what happened. And it is in those two words, but God. And dear friend, whenever God's work is brought into the place of death, whenever God allows a Christian's life to go into a winter of darkness, affliction, or impossibility, there are only two words that can ever explain a resurrection. And those words are, but God. And God allows his work and his children again and again to pass into that realm of impossibility where nothing human can change the circumstances, where nothing human can touch the situation but God. Supremely it is seen here in this 28th chapter of Matthew. Written over it is but God. Satan had done his worst. Hell had done its worst. Man had done his worst. The Sanhedrin had done their worst. Rome had done its worst. It was impossible. But God. I have divided the chapter into two. The first 15 verses I have entitled The Resurrection of the King. And the last four verses I have entitled The Great Commission <coughs> of the King. Let's look first at the resurrection of the King. Chapter 28, the first 15 verses. Toward dawn of the first day of a new week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and some other women, according to the other gospel writers, went to the sepulchre. You will remember that they had not had time to complete the burial arrangements 
concerning the Lord Jesus um, on that Friday night because of the Sabbath which had begun at sunset and they'd had to stop the evening before just after Sabbath had concluded at sunset 6pm on Saturday night remember that's Jewish reckoning 6pm on Saturday night they'd gone out the women had gone out and bought spices and they had spent some hours during the evening preparing the spices ready for the last embalming of the body now just before the dawn was breaking in the darkness just before the dawn they sped on their way uh, to the sepulchre um, you'll find in the notes the, the references if you want to look what, up <coughs> what I've said from the records it is quite evident that the disciples were without exception disillusioned and depressed a heavy death-filled morning saturates the atmosphere around you. you can feel it you can just feel it as you read the record it permeated their hearts and their minds this death-like morning the king was dead his lifeless body lying in that rock sepulchre with the great stone door shut and sealed proved the fact he was dead and gradually as the first terrible shock of his death had worn off it had sunk into them that he actually had died on their way to the sepulchre they asked one another, according to Mark, how they were going to uh, open the door. It's a very sweet aside. You only get it in Mark. They asked one another on their way, who is going to roll back the door for us? <laughs> they were only women. What could they do? I noticed they didn't ask about the seal or the guard. <laughs> They just didn't know, but they were on their way. But even as they inquired, the earth was shaken with a great earth tremor. Because, Matthew tells us, an angel of the Lord had descended, had gone forward, had taken the door and rolled it back, and then glory. He climbed up on it and sat on it. <laughs> now, there was no need for the angel to do that. I don't know if you ever thought of it. There was no need for the angel to do that. To me, that was the final triumph. <laughs> Just to climb up on that great millstone-like door and sit on the thing. <laughs> on top of it. That's what God thought of it. Man had done their worst. Only one word, God. Had dispersed the whole thing. <clears throat> the seal's broken, yet by no human hand. The guards were knocked unconscious by divine power, absolutely out, all over the place. 
all 60 of them, <laughs> knocked completely out by divine power. It says, trembling shook them, and then they were knocked unconscious. God had not moved that stone so that Christ could get out, as some Christians mistakenly think. Oh, goodness gracious me. Christ was later to go through doors when they were shut. Christ could have moved through that stone in an instant if he'd wanted to. The stone was not moved for Christ to get out. The stone was moved to let the disciples in. More than that, it was to give us the one absolutely true symbol of Christianity, the empty tomb. The opened and empty tomb. That's why the Lord did it. He might set before us the glorious fact of the resurrection. Not a sealed tomb, but an open tomb. Sunlight and fresh air in had got into it. We find that in these wonderful verses, two and three about the earthquake, <laughs> the earth tremor, the angel of the Lord descending from heaven, came, rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and so on. They've got it all there. Now, when the women arrived, they'd been moving towards this scene. As far as we know, the earth tremor had struck it, if we take the other records into consideration, the earth tremor had struck it before they got there. When they actually got there, an amazing sight greeted them. The stone was rolled back, which of which they'd only just been inquiring. The seal was broken. The guards were unconscious all 60 of them, and an angel, that the tomb was empty, and an angel was sitting on that stone, that rolled back stone. The king had risen. The, NA, the, the angel announced uh, the glorious fact and, and invited them to inspect the tomb. See what he says? Uh, in uh, verse 5 and 6, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, but I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. I have no doubt that those dear women could hardly grasp it. No wonder Mark tells us, that they ran away in panic and didn't speak to anyone. Matthew says uh, that uh, they evidently recovered themselves a bit later and went uh, and told uh, the disciples um, what they had seen. The fact was they could hardly grasp it. Of all the tremendous events of the last week, this was the most overwhelming and the most incredible. They had seen the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem when the, all the crowds cut down the palms of the trees and shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They had seen the last events. They had watched 
or heard certainly the women had of the agony in Gethsemane they'd heard about the Passover perhaps they had prepared it in the background certainly they had seen the trial before the Sanhedrin they knew all about it the trial before the Roman governor the mockery, the ill treatment the scourging they had been present at his crucifixion they had watched the six dread hours of his life work they had heard that terrible cry my God my God why hast thou forsaken me they had heard that last great triumphant cry it is finished now this of all the events was the most overwhelming and the most incredible he was not dead he was alive the tomb was empty the other records tell us that Mary Magdalene who evidently got there just a little before was so shocked when she saw the tomb roll back that she ran back to get Peter and John she said they've taken him they've taken the body away Sounds as if she was slightly more intelligent than the others. But probably jumped to the conclusion straight away as soon as she saw the door open. Well, whatever it was, it was hard for them to grasp the fact. The angel told them to go quickly and tell the disciples in verses 6 and 7 to tell the disciples that Christ was risen and that they were to go to Galilee where he would meet them there. With, um, according to Matthew, with overflowing joy, overflowing, and I should imagine, ecstatic joy, approaching hysteria in one way, not sure of it, with awe and fear, they ran away from the tomb, hardly knowing what they were doing. And as they ran, their heads filled with what had happened, their minds reeling, suddenly, suddenly, in front of them, stood the king. They looked at him, and all he said, if we were to put it in English, which I must say would sound probably irreverent to most of you, all he said was, hello. That word, all hail, which sounds so very ecclesiastical, <laughs> is just simply the greeting. Today in Israel, it's shalom, peace. You know, in America, it would be hi. <laughs> literally, literally, I'm not being irreverent. Norway would be hey. In Switzerland, it would be ciao. So simple. Hello. Can you imagine it? They looked at him. And then it says they clasped his feet. This was no ghost. This was no spirit. This was flesh and blood. They clasped his feet. And they worshipped him. So it says, if you look in verses 8 to 10, they clasped his, took hold of his feet feet and worshipped him verse 9 then Jesus said do not be afraid 
go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, you know, again, it is so sad that these ecclesiastical ideas get into Scripture. Tell my brethren. You know, we all think of that as a very, very sort of... uh, Well, if I had brothers, I wouldn't call them brethren. I'd call them brothers. What I see that the New English Bible and Phillips both have put it, tell my brothers. And that brings it home to us. Oh, what grace. Not tell my subjects. Or, 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 or tell my servants. Or tell my friends. But go and tell my brothers. Brothers. Every one of them had forsaken him. Every one of them had let him down. Go and tell my brothers. Isn't that wonderful? What grace. What had happened? Well, you know, it was one thing to see a stone rolled back, the seal broken, the guards unconscious, the tomb empty. It was another thing to see the Lord himself. He himself had met them. And they had recognized that it was he himself. Exactly as they knew him. God had raised Christ from the dead. That was the glorious fact. It took some time for the fact to sink in. A number of different instances where he appeared to them again and again and again. But the fact was simple. God had raised Christ from the dead. What did it mean? What did it mean? Oh, if we were to start this evening, what does the resurrection of Christ mean? We'd be here all night and all tomorrow. What did it really mean? Well, we can say one or two things. First of all, it was God's authoritative vindication of all Christ's claims. That he claimed to be the Son of God. That he claimed to be God. That he claimed to be the Messiah. That he claimed to be the King. God vindicated him. That resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the vindication of absolute truth. God would never have raised Jesus Christ if there had been an atom of untruth in any claim that he had made. It was the vindication, the authoritative vindication of every claim he had made. Poor Sanhedrin. They had condemned him on these claims. They had crucified him on these claims. God authoritatively vindicated him and set him forth through that resurrection to be God the Son, the King, the Messiah. It was more than that. That resurrection was God's absolute approval and acceptance publicly 
of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was as if God said, accepted. I accept completely and utterly your life work. I set my seal on it. What does that mean? That you and I are justified by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It was the work of Jesus Christ that atoned for our sin. And God has finally and completely accepted and approved that work. And we have it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It means more. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ means this. It is the divine guarantee that God will receive the vilest sinner through Jesus Christ and save him. Because we're told he ever lives to make intercession for us. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what you've done. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is, is the divine guarantee of God that he will accept any man or woman. Providing they will come through Jesus Christ. It is more, dear friend, it is this. It is the solemn pledge of God. The solemn pledge of a final and complete redemption involving the whole being of those he saves. Spirit, soul, and thanks be to God, body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. And the guarantee that one day all who've put their trust in him will have redemption bodies. What is that? To receive our redemption to wit, the redemption of our body, says the Apostle Paul in one place. What is redemption? It not only means that my spirit is saved and my soul is saved, but one day, thank God, I have a complete redemption. My body will be redeemed. Today it is fashionable to shove into the ground the dead bodies of saints as quickly as you possibly can. Because I am told again and again uh, that, well, they're not there. They're in heaven. Is an entirely foreign thing to the word of God. It is true they are not there. But oh, the sensitiveness of God over the bodies of those he has saved. Those bodies will return to dust and ashes, but one day the atoms will be brought back again. And out of that dust and out of those ashes will be formed a new resurrection body. Have you never realized the fact, dear child of God, that when the Lord Jesus comes, bringing with him those who are in glory, it says, those that are dead shall rise first. Well, what are they doing rising if they're already up there with him? What is it that rises if it's not something... The scene, the dust, the ashes that has gone back into the ground is somehow brought together by divine miracle. 
reformed into a resurrection body like unto his. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is, is, is the solemn pledge of a final and complete redemption. I am not only redeemed, loosed from my sins, but the meaning of it is this, that so tremendous is that loosing, that in the end it will include this body in which sin lies to the end of my day. And the last act of my salvation will be when this body is loosed from sin in its members and made like unto his. Well, now, you see, if all hell had sought to get hold of, of the king, if he had plumbed unknown and unexplored debt of agony and suffering when he bore away the sin of the world and God forsook him and judged him if as we're told in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 verse 4 he had been crucified through weakness there is nothing so weak as the sun nailed to a tree so so they could spit at him they could mock him. They could put their, their, their faces, their noses less than a few feet from his chin and jeer at him. If you are the Son of God, come down, they could say. Their breath he could smell. That's the weakness of his crucifixion. Limited. Tied to a cross. If he had been crucified through weakness. If it had been Satan's hour and the power and authority of darkness. And Satan had perpetrated on him all that an, an implacable hatred could conceive. And we shall never know all that that means. Christ now proved once and forever that he is king over all. You know what he did? Listen. Just listen to it. In the notes you'll find the references. Listen to what he did. He went into hell and he preached the eternal gospel of God's grace. Think of it! C.T. Studd was once asked by some blasphemer and supposing you end up in hell. He said, I shall preach the gospel there. <laughs> the Satan thought he'd got Christ. Satan thought he'd dragged him into hell. For you see what it says in Scripture? Death could not keep him. It had got him, but it couldn't keep him. It says, he would not leave. God would not leave his soul in hell, in, in Hades. In Hades. See? Leave it. It was there. But what did he do in hell? The forecourt of hell. What did he do in it? He preached to the departed spirits the gospel of God's redeeming love and grace. 
we're told. Peter tells us he preached to all those who died in the days of Noah. We don't know as a mystery. But I'm quite sure Satan was extremely embarrassed. He proved that death could not keep him. Or the Apostle Peter again tells us in Acts, it was not possible that death could hold him. But he did more. He not only proved that death could not keep him, and death was the devil's weapon. He returned from that impenetrable darkness, as our old hymn puts it, with the foiled usurper's crown. He'd taken the crown from the prince of this world and thrown him out. He'd taken it back for God. Henceforth, angels, authorities, powers were subject to him. We're told so in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. And Colossians 2 and verse 15 tells us these wonderful words. He, he, he took it and he nailed it to the cross, openly <coughs> triumphing over them in it. He stripped principalities and powers naked, openly triumphing over them through his cross. Tremendous. Philippians 2 says this, verse uh, 9 to 11, it says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In Ephesians chapter 1 we're told that God raised him from the dead and set him far above all principality and power. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. He came back from that impenetrable darkness with the foiled usurper's crown. But more, he came back with the keys of death and hell. We're told in Revelation 1 and verse 18, he said, fear not, behold, I became dead and I am alive forevermore. I am the living one. And behold, I have the keys of death and Hades of hell. God had broken Satan's monopoly in death. Christ came back with the keys. Not only the crown, he came back with the keys. Now he can insert the key in any death-locked, hell-locked situation and let people out. They've only got to call on him and he'll do it. People say to me that they won't believe in Christ till they see him. But until a person humbles himself or herself before God, the keys are not used. But once they do, one humbling of themselves before the exalted Saviour, and the keys go into the lock. And we come out into the sunshine of God's presence. Oh, we could go on and we could go on. He returned with the blood, so the writer to the Hebrew letter say, of the Hebrew letter says, he returned with the blood of an eternal covenant. Think of it. He said, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who brought again that great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of an eternal covenant. Think of it. He came back out of death with the blood of an eternal covenant, just like one day Moses took the blood of a lamb or of a goat and sprinkled it over the people, signifying the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. So this time, back from death and hell came Christ with the blood of an eternal covenant. And he sprinkles us. Everyone who puts their trust in him, he sprinkles, touched with the blood of the Lamb henceforth to make that covenant real in the life of every single one who will put their trust in him. To become the saviour to the uttermost of all who will draw near to, to God by him. He's got the blood. You know what it speaks of? It speaks not only of the king, it speaks of the high priest. The one who stands before the face of God forever. He was raised the redeemer of all that has been lost. Now, I don't say all who have been lost, but the redeemer of all that has been lost. Not only the redeemer of us who were lost, but the redeemer of all that which has been lost. The earth and its fullness. Everything. And if you want to, you'll see in the notes the references I give to you. In Colossians, where it says... Through the blood he shall reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth. He shall reconcile all things. And in Ephesians 1 it says, He shall head up all things and be the sum of everything. He is the head of a new creation. The firstborn from the dead. The head of God's Well, we must finish. Well, what can we say? We, you look at it. God has raised Christ from the dead. But meanwhile, <laughs> some of the guards had recovered and gone to inform the Sanhedrin, we're told, in verses 11 to 15, gone to, re, to inform the Sanhedrin as to, all, as to what had happened, and, and in great consternation, uh, they conferred together and bribed uh, the soldiers to tell a lie. It's as simple as that. And this untrue version could have got the guards into serious trouble. But the Sanhedrin said, don't worry about that. If it gets to the governor's ears, we'll bribe him too, if necessary. But whatever the Sanhedrin did, and whatever version they put out, and whatever story has circulated, nothing on earth or in hell or in heaven could change the simple and glorious fact that Christ was alive from the dead. And the birth of the church is the greatest evidence for that simple fact. Disillusioned, disappointed, disintegrated, not expecting him to be raised from the dead, Something happened which launched something which was to spread to the ends of the earth. Simple people. How did it happen? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we come to the last four verses. Matthew's gospel ends 
with the risen king's commission. The occasion was when they went to Galilee, as he told them to. You see it in verse 16 and 17. And there on the mountain he had directed them to, which we do not know, uh, he met them. The king is about to ascend to the right hand of the majesty on high there to reign till his enemies become the footstool of his feet. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, he says in verse 18. There is nothing outside of its scope, nothing. He is supreme, king of kings and lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth as Revelation puts it so beautifully. Head over all things to the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All! Not the majority. All authority. And mark it, not all authority in heaven but all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why he is king of kings and lord of lords and ruler of the kings of the earth. Head over all things to the church, whether in heaven or on earth or in hell. Listen. There is nothing he cannot do. Let it sink into your consciousness. There is nothing he cannot do. No advance he cannot make. No intention he cannot realize. No obstacle he cannot overcome. Christ is on the throne. And he cannot lose. But I will add something more, which is here in these verses. This is exactly what the Lord was saying. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm supreme. He cannot lose. He's on the throne. Truth will win. And even if the last days of this world will see the most terrible wickedness and darkness and lies, truth will win. Why? Because truth is on the throne. That's why. Truth has won. The king is in throne. Oh, it's wonderful. And I want to add this point to it. And it's this. The redeemed, saved through his blood, and joined to him in one spirit, are therefore on the winning side. And that's why he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the close of the age. We're on the winning side. Oh, if only we could get rid of what's not on the winning side. That old man, that old woman. <laughs> What's none of God? 
that's not on the winning side. That's the thing that brings us into defeat and defeat and defeat and defeat. But what there is of God in us, what there is that's been redeemed, what there is that's been saved, is on the winning side. With majestic authority, the risen, triumphant king commissions the eleven, and through the eleven, the whole church. In verses 19 and 20, the last verses of this gospel. We are to go and we are to make disciples of all nations. We are to baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And we are to give them the whole counsel of God, teaching them all things which I have commanded to observe and do. Mark it, make disciples, not as in the authorized version, teach all nations, that's weak. Make disciples of all nations. And mark again that the, it, it is not baptize them as, as there is a false doctrine going around in the States and in this country into the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost as if there are three names here. It is the singular, the name in the singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. When Jewish converts, proselytes to Judaism were, were baptized, they were baptized into the name of the Father. The Lord added and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name is the name of Jesus, of course. Into the name of Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There are three things here in this commission. This commission comprehends everything. Everything. The first is true discipleship. The second thing is what baptism really means. We're not just to go around immersing people in water. It's what it means. And the third thing is the whole counsel of God. Not theories, but practice. You will notice that we are told to make disciples and then we have to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy That is to understand individually and corporately what our position is in Christ. Everything is included in that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Well, we end these studies. It is wonderful that Matthew ends simply on this note of triumph with the Great Commission. Why the Great Commission? Because it's the Kingdom. It's the Kingdom. We are to go out into this world proclaiming the kingdom. Proclaiming that the kingdom is open to all. Proclaiming that they can be brought by the Spirit of God into it. Baptized into one's, by one spirit into one body. Glorious. Matthew's Gospel ends then with a wonderful promise. And it is this, and mark it, as we fulfill the commission, he solemnly promised that he, the risen, triumphant king, will be with us always, all the days 
until the close of this age, however vile, however dark, however terrible, he solemnly promises he will be blessed. He was forsaken that we might not be forsaken. As we fulfill the commission, he is with us. Through to the end. Through to the end till his final coming with the kingdom of heaven. And it will come, dear friend, I was almost going to say to you on Tuesday when we were talking about, and this is not in the notes, but I was going to say to you on Tuesday when we were talking about the crisis here and a crisis there and a crisis everywhere, crisis in the United States, crisis here, crisis in the whole free world, crisis in Eastern Europe. I was going to say I've got a very strong feeling there will be another crisis in Israel before long. And it seems as if something's blowing up in Israel as quickly as that. We live in, in days of crisis, but we have no need to fear. The final coming of the king with the kingdom of heaven is sure and certain. He has risen. He has ascended, and he is beyond the reach of the enemy. The only people the enemy can get at is us. And he gets at us. He can't get at the head anymore. But the head is the guarantee that the rest of us will get there. By his grace, by his power, by his mercy. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Oh, beloved Lord, we do pray that somehow the truth of that resurrection of thine would dawn on us all and that we would be a people who live in the good of thy resurrection life and power and not only that Lord that oh we might be a people who are fulfilling that commission to go and make disciples of all nations Lord burn it into our hearts that as we fulfill it we might also know beloved Lord that presence of thine with us in a committed way fully, completely joyfully to the very end to the coming of the kingdom we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen, Amen.